Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Tiffany Meyer in for Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. President Biden's son Hunter Biden pleading guilty to federal charges. What's in his plea deal with the Justice Department and how the White House is reacting. Former President Trump defends himself about the classified documents indictment. Find out what he says and what the prosecutor who handed Trump his first indictment is facing. Special Counsel John Durham meets with the House Intelligence Committee. The hearing comes after he issued a scathing report on how the FBI handled the Trump-Russia investigation. Only 35 hours of oxygen left for a crew of five on the missing submarine. The search for the Titanic tourist expedition continues. And China is in talks to build a military training facility in Cuba. The Biden administration is warning Havana to tread carefully. President Biden's son Hunter plans to plead guilty to two tax crimes and has struck a deal with federal prosecutors to resolve a felony gun charge. NTD's Iris Tao brings us more from the White House. Federal prosecutors charged Hunter Biden with failure to pay income tax and a felony gun charge of illegally possessing a firearm while knowing that he was addicted to using drugs. According to court documents, Hunter Biden is expected to enter a plea deal, basically pleading guilty to the two misdemeanor tax crimes. But when it comes to the felony gun charge, he's expected to enter what he calls a diversion program through which he could walk away with no jail time or even a felony record if he stays sober for two years and gives up the right to ever own a gun again. If you are the president's son, you get a sweetheart deal. Meanwhile, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy today criticized what he calls a two-tier justice system, and he vows to continue GOP's investigation into the Biden family and its business dealings. The DOJ should not be able to withhold any information now. But a top Democrat on the House Oversight Panel today called the charges against Hunter Biden a reflection of the DOJ's independence. And that's as former President Trump, who was indicted with 37 federal charges, and calls Hunter Biden's charges a mere traffic ticket. And today, President Biden said, I'm very proud of my son. A White House spokesperson says today that the president and the first lady love their son and support him as he continues to rebuild his life, while adding, we have no further comment. Meanwhile, although Hunter Biden's attorney says today's announcement marks the end to a five-year investigation into Hunter Biden, the DOJ later said on Tuesday that its investigation into Hunter Biden is still ongoing. Reporting from the White House, Iris Tao, NTD News. A federal judge today set an August trial date in the classified documents case against former President Trump. Meanwhile, the Manhattan District Attorney who indicted Trump two months ago is facing his own legal woes. NTD's legal correspondent Arlene Richards has the updates. The district judge assigned to oversee the classified documents criminal case against former President Trump has set an August 14 trial date. Judge Eileen Cannon alerted both sides in a six-page order filed on Tuesday. According to the order, the legal teams must submit any pretrial motions by July 24, and they are scheduled to appear for a preliminary hearing on August 8. During the appearance, lawyers representing Trump and co-defendant Walt T. Nalta and prosecutors will work with the judge to hammer out trial details, including a new trial date if necessary. Meanwhile, on Monday, in the first interview since the indictment, Trump told Fox News why he didn't turn over the documents when he was subpoenaed. 
because I had boxes. I want to go through the boxes and get all my personal things out. I don't want to hand that over to Nara yet. And I was very busy, as you've sort of seen. The indictment included a transcribed conversation in which Trump referred to a document during a July 2021 meeting that he described as secret and classified. On Monday, Trump insisted that the papers he had during the meeting were numerous newspaper and magazine clippings about Iran and other things, rather than an actual secret classified document showing a military plan to attack Iran. The audio recording serves as crucial evidence in the indictment against Trump. He is accused of unlawfully retaining 31 sensitive government documents, including highly classified information on U.S. nuclear and military capabilities. Over in Manhattan, District Attorney Alvin Bragg, who levied a 34-count indictment against Trump, is facing lawsuits for refusing to turn over prosecution records. A conservative think tank is alleging that Bragg and his office coordinated with a New York Democrat lawmaker, the White House and the DOJ about the prosecution. They are asking a court to release requested documents under the New York Freedom of Information law and declare that Bragg hand them over. Bragg's office has not yet responded to a request for comment on the lawsuits. Arlene Richards, NTD News. Special Counsel John Durham met with the House Intelligence Committee this afternoon. They discussed his report on what he calls the FBI's seriously flawed investigation into former President Trump. This was over now disproved allegations of Russia ties. It was a closed-door hearing, but NTD's Melina Weisskopf heard from some committee members afterward. Melina, what did they have to tell you? So Chairman Mike Turner and ranking Democrat member Jim Himes came and spoke to reporters immediately following that meeting with special counsel John Durham. And it's interesting because they had pretty much a bipartisan consensus of wanting to address the mistakes that the FBI made in, that, in launching that investigation against former President Donald Trump and expressing a wish to find solutions moving forward. Let's look at what they had to say. It was interesting to, to hear from uh, Mr. Durham that he has concerns that there are reforms that need to go into place and that there are still issues that, that need to be addressed. And he was very forthcoming and sharing with us, and I think that we were able to get some information that would be very helpful for us in the work that we have to do on both uh, FISA renewal, FISA reforms, and also reform issues with the FBI. And I appreciate my ranking member, Jim essentially says that the FBI made serious mistakes when launching that crossfire hurricane investigation into former President Donald Trump because they lacked sufficient evidence to even open the investigation to begin with. Instead, the information that the FBI did have was based on individual sources who were politically biased and those facts went unchecked. Even when the FBI did come across information that was contrary to that uh, information coming from those individual sources, they still dismissed it and continue to launch that investigation. Now, of course, we've heard from many Republicans. Um, they, they've pointed to this Durham report saying that it's proof that the FBI has used their power to target political opponents, specifically former President Donald Trump. Of course, this is a similar argument that we heard just last week during Trump's second arraignment. Now, the FBI has responded acknowledging that they did make mistakes with that crossfire hurricane investigation, but have said they have since taken steps to prevent 
mistakes like this from happening in the future and have also said that the FBI officials involved in the Crossfire Hurricane investigation have left the FBI either by retiring, being terminated, or having resigned. Now, Durham, we did not hear from him today um, because, as you mentioned, that was a closed-door meeting. However, he will be here on Capitol Hill tomorrow at the Judiciary Committee where that hearing will be public. Melina, thank you for that. And to help us unpack the latest developments relating to the classified documents case against former President Trump and Hunter Biden's guilty plea deal is Jenna Ellis, former senior advisor in counsel to President Trump and constitutional attorney. Jenna Ellis, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Thanks so much. I appreciate it, Tiffany. So it's a big day in politics. Hunter Biden has agreed to plead guilty to federal tax offenses. And this agreement also avoids a prosecution on a felony charge of illegally owning a firearm as a drug user. So to begin, how unusual is this, the speed around this case to resolve a federal criminal case the same day as charges are filed in court? Yeah, well, I think everything surrounding this plea agreement uh, with Hunter Biden is uh, very unusual and certainly uh, raises some questions that need to be answered uh, by the Department of Justice. Uh, interestingly, for that specific gun possession felony charge that you mentioned, uh, the Department of Justice has on its own website still uh, the standard requirements for a diversion or a pretrial diversion, which is an alternative method of resolving a case. And specifically, they say that uh, pretrial diversion programs created by the U.S. Attorney's Office shall exclude any individual who is, and this is Section 3, accused of an offense involving brandishing or use of a firearm or other deadly weapon. And so my understanding of the facts in this case would seem to clearly fall within these particular guidelines. So the question that I think a lot of people are asking is, is Hunter Biden uh, getting preferential treatment? And it certainly seems so because the other guideline from the Department of Justice is that traditionally uh, justice will indict and pursue charges that are the most serious for anything that they reasonably believe that they can prove. And clearly here, two misdemeanors and then a pretrial diversion for a felony uh, seems just like a slap on the wrist and does seem preferential. And Jenna, speaking of the DOJ, this comes as U.S. Attorney David Weiss said today that a plea agreement will not end the Justice Department's investigation into Hunter Biden. So what's next here? Well, I think we still have a lot of questions that uh, we would love to see answers to. And we're about five years and millions of dollars of taxpayer uh, money down the drain, really. Uh, and Congress is still investigating um, circumstances surrounding uh, Hunter Biden's connection with Burisma. Um, what, if anything, uh, the Biden family, including President Biden, uh, may have received in terms of inducements and finances from Ukraine. We still have the entire laptop that uh, really hasn't been uh, gone through. And so I think that this is um, just seems like a, a, a figly uh, sort of uh, resolution to something that uh, the American people don't really perceive as genuine accountability. You mentioned preferential treatment, and this comes the same day as a date has been set for Trump's classified documents case that's set for August 14th. And you actually commented on that by saying that the Hunter Biden charges are, quote, just in time to distract from the Trump trial date and give the appearance of fairness. What do you mean by that? Well, I think that one of uh, the Trump's legal defenses is going to be selective prosecution and that this is, in his words, another witch hunt 
or uh, another hoax. And so certainly uh, with this type of a uh, of charges bringing br uh, brought against Hunter Biden and then this resolution, it would seem that the DOJ is trying to create an appearance of fairness. But I don't really think that the court of public opinion is going to buy that. And so this coming uh, on the very same day that now the trial date has been announced, uh, is that coincidental? It doesn't really feel like it in the media. And on that point, why do you think the judge is fast-tracking Trump's trial date? Well, this is simply a placeholder. So uh, certainly the August 14th date is not set in stone. I do anticipate that that is likely to be moved uh, just with the overwhelming amount of pretrial motions and other things that will have to be sorted through by the court. But I do think that it is a signal that the DOJ does intend to pursue a trial well before the uh, November 2024 election date and maybe even before the primary. So I don't know if Trump's legal team has really anticipated that. And especially with all of uh, their client statements yesterday to Fox News and some other uh, public statements that he's made. We'll see if uh, that favors or hurts their defense. Definitely lots happening here in the legal world. Jenna Ellis, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much. Meanwhile, President Biden is in California's Bay Area for the second day to talk about AI technology and continue his 2024 presidential campaign. NTD's David Lamb reports. President Biden landed in Silicon Valley yesterday and announced a $600 million national plan for climate issues. Today, he met with tech executives and people in the industry to discuss artificial intelligence, including how to seize its opportunity and manage its risks. My administration is committed, is committed to safeguarding America's rights and safety, from protecting privacy to addressing bias and disinformation, to making sure AI systems are safe before they are released. On Tuesday, President Biden was in San Francisco for his 2024 presidential campaign. He's also visiting several locations in the North Bay, including the cities of Kentfield and Larkspur. A White House official said Biden's summit include experts known for being outspoken on the impact of AI on jobs, children, bias and prejudice, and the risks posed by AI if it isn't properly regulated and added that, quote, U.S. government agencies have ramped up their authorities to protect Americans from the risks posed by AI, including fraud and discrimination. As I've said before, we'll see more technological change in the next 10 years than we've seen in the last 50 years, and maybe even beyond that. According to the president's schedule, Biden has a campaign reception on Tuesday evening. In Santa Clara, California, David Lamb, NTD News. A former lawyer for Trump could have his license to practice law revoked. Hearings are underway in downtown Los Angeles, where the lawyer is facing a variety of allegations. Here's NTD's Christina Corona with more on the story. The California State Bar has initiated proceedings to have former President Donald Trump's one-time attorney, John Eastman, disbarred due to advice he provided to Trump in connection with the 2020 presidential election. The State Bar alleges that following that election, Eastman was developing what they call a dubious legal strategy which would have kept Trump in power following his election defeat. That strategy included disrupting the counting of the state electoral votes as well as trying to get Mike Pence to stop the certification of Joe Biden's victory. Eastman is facing 11 disciplinary charges which could result in him losing his license to practice law in California. 
The state bar claims that Eastman violated California's Business and Professions Code by making false and misleading statements that constitute acts of, quote, moral turpitude, dishonesty, and corruption. In Eastman's defense, his attorney Randall A. Miller said that the state bar's action, quote, is part of a nationwide effort to use the bar discipline process to penalize attorneys who oppose the current administration in the last presidential election. Americans of both political parties should be troubled by this politicization of our nation's state bars. It should be noted that the California State Bar is a regulatory agency and the only court system in the U.S. that is dedicated to attorney discipline. If the State Bar Court decides to disbar Eastman, it is the California Supreme Court that makes the final decision. Christina Corona, NTD News, Los Angeles. Coming up, a group of five tourists who went to seek the Titanic wreckage is still missing. Time is now ticking as the search for their submarine continues. And a fire at an e-bike repair shop in Manhattan turns deadly. NTD spoke with a nearby store owner who helped firefighters put out the fire. Welcome back. Time is ticking as the submersible that took tours to see the Titanic wreckage remains missing. Five people on board and they have an estimated 35 hours of air left. The vice chair of one of Pakistan's largest conglomerates is among those missing after a submersible carrying wealthy tourists to see the wreckage of the Titanic disappeared at sea. Shazada Dawood is vice chair of Engro Corporation with investments in fertilizers, vehicle manufacturing, energy, and digital technologies. He is also a trustee of the California-based research institute, SETI. His son was also on board the missing sub. The adventurers left Sunday on a $250,000 trip to see the 1912 Titanic wreckage. But according to the U.S. Coast Guard, contact for the vessel, named Titan, was lost in a remote area in the Atlantic Ocean about an hour and 45 minutes later. It's not clear what condition the vessel is in. During a press briefing on Tuesday, the Coast Guard said they searched an area larger than the state of Connecticut, but they still haven't found anyone. Search efforts have continued through last night and today. Today, the vessel Deep Energy, 194-meter pipe-laying vessel, arrived on scene with underwater ROV capability. They have rendezvoused with the vessel Polar Prince and commenced an ROV dive at the last known of the position of the Titan and the approximate position of the Titanic wreck. That operation is currently ongoing. The carbon fiber submersible, part of a mission by Ocean Gate Expeditions, also carried a pilot, a renowned British adventurer, and a Titanic expert. I last spoke to Hamish right before his dive. He casually just wrote that he's on his way to the Titanic and he's waiting for the perfect weather window. And me, in an equally casual way, just answered, Godspeed, Hamish, and left it at that because he's always exploring. And I didn't consider that this type of expedition would be as dangerous as it's turned out to be. I'm just hoping for good news. Every single second, every single minute feels like hours. Um, and we're losing time and we're losing opportunity to find them alive. The sub has a four-day oxygen supply, and it's now day three. Additionally, a Canadian P-3 aircraft is currently conducting a six-hour search of the area, and several C-130 aircraft 
and another P-3 are scheduled to fly this afternoon and this evening. Experts say it will be a challenging rescue mission. If it's on the surface, uh, it'll be a normal sort of standard search and rescue, but it will be quite challenging to uh, locate it because it won't be like a boat floating on the surface as it's a submersible, it's uh, neutrally buoyant. So the majority of it will actually be below the surface, just a small amount uh, above the surface. So it'll be quite difficult to see from the air. And it's only about the size of a large transit van, so about six or seven meters long. It's not a very big vessel. If the vessel is on the ocean floor, the rescuers will face even greater obstacles. The ocean floor is more rugged than it is on land. So it could be if it's in a canyon or a sea mount, a sort of submarine um, mountain, if you like, um, that's going to be harder to find. Uh, as well. In a May 2021 court filing, OceanGate said the sub had an unparalleled safety feature that assesses the integrity of the hull throughout every dive. It is capable of diving 2.4 miles with a quote, comfortable safety margin. The goal of OceanGate's expeditions has been chronicling the Titanic's deterioration as well as the underwater ecosystem that shipwrecks often spawn. A Republican congresswoman is introducing a federal 15-week abortion ban. At the same time, she's highlighting how most Americans actually think alike when it comes to abortion. NTD's Arian Pazdar has the highlights from her speech. This year's anniversary of Dobbs is a moment to embrace how far we have come in this movement to protect the sanctity of life. Republican congresswoman Elise Stefanik of New York spoke at a pro-life event on Tuesday. She says Americans actually think more alike than it might seem. The majority of the American people believe a baby born alive should be provided necessary health care. The majority of the American people condemn violent attacks on crisis pregnancy centers. And while those in the media want to portray Americans as viscerally divided on this issue, I believe there is far more consensus than the media would like to admit. She went on to cite a Harvard-Harris poll, which appears to be from last year, to back up her point. Less than 10 percent of voters support the position of today's radical Democrat Party that there should be no limits on abortion. 91 percent of Americans support pregnancy centers and the vital material, medical and educational support to mothers they offer. Meanwhile, in related news, the American Medical Association wants a new approach for pregnant women who abuse drugs. It wants to end mandated reporting to child welfare services. It said in a press release that pregnant people in pain or struggling with substance use need comprehensive support and treatment, not judgment. The organization calls to report only when protective concerns are identified. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. The International Monetary Fund is working on a platform for central bank digital currencies. The managing director argues that the digital currencies shouldn't be fragmented by nation. What are the concerns with the IMF pushing for digital currency? NTD Business's Don Ma speaks to an expert in this field. And here with me is Thomas Hogan, senior research faculty at the American Institute for Economic Research. So the International Monetary Fund uh, wants a platform for central bank digital currencies. Now, before we get into the pros and cons, I just want you to explain to me, what, is it, what does it mean exactly to have a, a global CBDC platform? 
Yeah, that's right. It's a good question because I think this has been uh, kind of misreported in some of the articles that I've seen online because of the uh, lack of clarity about what we mean by platform. So sometimes when we talk about central bank digital currency, we mean the, the platform is the currency itself. Like, for example, if the U.S. were to introduce a CBDC, we might call that the platform. Or in Europe, if they're doing one, maybe that CBDC is the platform. Um, but that's not really what we mean here. We mean a a place where people could trade different currencies, different CBDCs. So for example, I, I think we can make a distinction. If I'm an American traveling in Europe and I, there are some stores that maybe accept US dollars, maybe I go into a store and I say, um, hey, do you accept dollars or euros? Um, that's a question of the currency itself, not a question of the platform. If they say they accept only euros, then I have to say, okay, well, do you take a Visa card, you know, or can I transfer from my, my debit card where my bank is going to switch from dollars into euros, or do I personally need to go to a bank and trade physical dollars for physical euros? You know, that question of how to get from one currency into the other is really what they're talking about for the platform here. The IMF itself is not going to launch a central bank digital currency, just help coordinate trade of different types of currencies. So what concerns comes with this, if there is any? Yeah, so I, I, I am not uh, concerned about the platform itself. Like I said, I, I don't think the IMF is really going to have a lot of control over that. Um, and so it, they probably um, you know, won't have much influence other than promoting CBDCs. Um, and that's really the thing that I'm a little bit more concerned about is that, you know, the IMF is, is trying to encourage countries to use CBDCs uh, in the United States or a bigger country. We, we might not worry about the government misusing that. I mean, we should worry a little bit in the United States, but much more of a concern in China where the, the government is using it to monitor all of their citizens. So for a lot of the countries that are trying to get better capabilities, the IMF is going to potentially be equipping them with ways to monitor their citizens and control their citizens. And so I'm, I'm a little bit worried about that. So you said in the U.S. we should still be a little bit worried about CBDC. Can you expand on that? Yeah, so the United States uh, is considering doing some kind of central bank digital currency. We haven't really committed to anything. The, the U.S. Federal Reserve, the Central Bank of the United States, is studying how they might implement a central bank digital currency. But so far, they, um, they are not planning to do one that would be uh, directly offered to U.S. citizens. And so that's a really important distinction that almost all of the countries, the plan is to have individual citizens use it just like they use regular currency. But in the United States, the Federal Reserve has said they actually don't think that they have the ability legally to do that. Um, all they could legally do right now, as far as they're currently saying, is offer it to banks, which would then offer um, some kind of digital currency to the citizens, which is essentially what they do now. You know, the Fed already has a digital system for, for coordinating bank payments and having banks deposit money at the Fed, making payments with the Fed. And so having a central bank digital currency that's only offered to the banking system really wouldn't be much different than we have now. Um, but there is some possibility that they might change their policy or that Congress might authorize them to offer a central bank digital currency directly to the public. And if that happens, then that'll be a lot different. And I think we'll need to worry about it a little bit more. All right. Thank you so much. Pleasure speaking to you today. Yeah, thanks. Glad to be on. A tragic incident unfolded in Manhattan just after midnight this morning. A fire at an e-bike repair shop turned deadly, claiming the lives of four people and leaving several others injured. NTD's Jason Perry reports at the scene.
In the early hours of Tuesday morning, a fire broke out here at this e-bike repair shop in Manhattan. Tragically, four people were killed, including a 71-year-old man and a 65-year-old woman. It's definitely a warning hazard having all those bikes in there with electric batteries, with all the humid and the rust, and especially being in the summertime, they're all roasting together. Something could have happened, you know, even worse. The Al-Saidi is the son of the owner of this shop in Manhattan's Chinatown, and it's a few units down from the e-bike repair shop. He said while the building was still on fire, the fire department asked for access to his shop because the shop's security gate was pulled down and locked. So we took a look inside his shop to get a better picture of what happened. Right now we're walking through the store. The son of the store owner said he let the firefighters through here to get access to help put out the fire in the rest of the building. It's more of, uh, this is where the light was for the bathroom. It was electric paneling. So this had to be yanked out to be able to uh, force a way into the little hole here to be able to get into one of the apartment buildings uh, that was initially in fumes. New York City's chief fire marshal said the e-bike repair shop was inspected almost a year ago and was cited for safety violations related to charging batteries. Authorities recently inspected the store and saw that there were many batteries there, but none of them were being charged at the time. And a man who said he owns the repair shop told the Associated Press that there were no batteries being charged at the time of the fire. However, according to researchers at the University of Michigan, elevated temperatures can accelerate degradation of almost every battery component and can lead to significant safety risks, including fire or explosion. I also spoke with a gentleman who lives in the area, and he said he's still waiting to see if his wife's friend who lives in that building is okay. And he gave some advice for the city. So what they should do is if they're going to open up one of those shops like that, put it in a location where like a, let's say like a garage, you know, that ain't no buildings around and all that, you know, because that's dangerous, man. Look at that, already two lives or four lives lost in there because of that. The New York City Fire Commissioner said so far this year, there have been over 100 fires and 13 deaths in the city related to those batteries. Jason Perry, NTD News, New York. Coming up, China is now reportedly planning a military training facility in Cuba. The Biden administration is taking this possibility seriously. And in Paris, the Olympic Committee headquarters is searched by French investigators. Is more Olympic corruption on the horizon? We'll have that and more when we return. Welcome back. Chinese troops could soon be stationed on America's doorstep. The regime is in talks of building a military training ground in Cuba. That's according to a classified report. NTD's Sam Wong has more. U.S. officials said that the training facility would be stationed just 100 miles off the coast of Florida. According to Intel reports, the discussion is at an advanced stage but has yet to come to a conclusion. Worth noting, the training ground is part of China's Project 141, Beijing's initiative to expand the regime's military networks overseas. The White House has reached out to Havana to halt the deal, warning that the partnership with China would put Cuba's sovereignty on the line. Officials have also warned Cuba to tread lightly, given the nation's dependency on the U.S. amid economic turmoil. 
The report comes one day after U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken's visit to China, where he brought up concerns about the regime's intel-gathering activities in Cuba. Blinken sought to reopen military-to-military communications with China during the trip, but failed. The U.S. has been watching closely as the regime expands its influence in Cuba. Officials said that Chinese intel-gathering facilities have existed in the island since at least 2019. The two nations run four eavesdropping sites together. And just last week, the White House acknowledged that the regime is planning an electronic surveillance outpost in Cuba. As for the parameter of China's plan in Cuba, officials said that it's not fully known. But they pointed out that if the new training facility is built, it may house Chinese troops permanently and further expand its intel-gathering activities. Sam Wang, NTT News. In Europe, the German Chancellor welcomed the Chinese Premier today. They both highlighted the benefits of free trade between their countries. But this move isn't viewed favorably by other EU countries. NTD's France correspondent David Vives has more. One step closer to China, one step away from Europe. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz and Chinese Premier Li Qiang on Tuesday agreed to support free trade after intergovernmental talks in Berlin. Scholz has come under fire for the talks which critics say are not appropriate anymore given growing geopolitical tensions between the West and China. A German intelligence agency published a warning in a report on Tuesday. The report says China is aiming to obtain German technology to bolster its military. It also highlights the risk of cyber-spying operations. Despite that, the German chancellor defended his position on the two countries' relationship. Author and historian Philippe Fabry says Germany's tough spot comes from the country's economic choices. A large part of China's industrialization has been achieved through the purchase of German machine tools, which is the biggest export sector for the German economy. So naturally, exporting those is vital for Germany. This conditions Germany's relationship with China and puts it at odds with the interests of many other Western countries, notably the United States. The German chancellor's position doesn't come as a surprise, though. When visiting China in November 2022, Scholz promoted partnership with the country. And in May, he confirmed a deal to allow a Chinese shipping company to take a minority stake in a container terminal at Hamburg port. Fabry says these moves from Germany make it more and more isolated from other EU countries. Since the start of the war in Ukraine, there has been a loss of German influence in Europe. That's because of a whole host of German strategies, and in particular, Germany's dependence on Russian gas, which has brought some form of discredit. Case in point, on the same day as Germany's announcement, the EU published an economic security plan. It seeks to convince the bloc's 27 states to agree stronger control on exports. It's particularly focused on technologies that could be put to military use by rivals like China. I think we're seeing a power struggle as the EU pledges to harden its relationship with China, which is also hoped for by the U.S. camp, who are determined to have the Europeans on their side in the strategic confrontation against China. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. Turning to updates on the war in Ukraine, the latest round of Russian airstrikes hits Kiev, and European leaders plan to call on China to act as a mediator in the war. According to Ukrainian officials, Russia on Tuesday struck at military and infrastructure targets in Ukraine's capital Kiev and across other parts of the country, including western areas far from the front lines. 
Russia said their forces hit and destroyed eight ammunition warehouses across Ukraine and repelled Ukrainian attacks in three different directions. The strikes took place as attention has been focused on Ukraine's counterattack against Russian positions in the south and east. And at the same time, southern Ukraine is still suffering from the collapse of the hydroelectric dam earlier this month. Ukraine's environment minister said on Tuesday that the dam collapse has caused roughly $1.3 billion in damage. It unleashed floodwaters across southern Ukraine and Russian-occupied areas of the Kherson region. It killed more than 50 people and destroyed homes and farmland. And come next week, European Union leaders plan to call on China to help mediate the war in Ukraine. A senior EU official said on Tuesday that EU leaders will bring up the issue during a summit in Brussels on June 29th and 30th. The officials said this is set out in draft conclusions prepared ahead of the summit and will also include a call for China to engage in global challenges and rebalance its economic relations with the EU. Speaking of China, Russia on Tuesday commented on U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken's visit to China. The Kremlin said it's confident in its relationship with China and not worried about potential U.S. attempts to influence its own ties. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. And now for your sports news, here's NTD's Dave Martin with some surprising Olympic news. That's right, Tiff. The Paris Olympic organizers' headquarters was searched Tuesday by local investigators as officials are looking into possible corruption in awarding contracts. Now, be it for building or sponsorship, we're not sure, but this is for the 2024 Summer Games. The committee said in a statement that the search was underway and that they had been cooperating, though they didn't comment any further. Now, the subject of Olympic corruption is nothing new, of course, and rarely does it seem to involve the actual athletes themselves. One of the biggest examples was the Salt Lake City Games of 2002 investigation that resulted in the dismissal of 10 IOC members and a complete overhaul of the bidding process after evidence allegedly showed that the Salt Lake City Bid Committee paid the college tuition for the child of an IOC member. After that, IOC members were no longer allowed to visit bidding cities. The Rio Games of 2016 were marred a year after their competition when a prominent French newspaper reported that IOC members were bribed just three days before their vote back in 2009, resulting in several jail sentences for those involved. Meanwhile, the Tokyo Olympics that took place just two summers ago have been smeared by allegations of rigging bids for major advertising contracts, though these cases are still going through the Japanese court system. And for your sports viewing schedule tonight, all 30 baseball teams are in action, including the hottest two teams in the game, the Cincinnati Reds, who've won nine straight, and the San Francisco Giants, who've won eight in a row. Cincy plays Colorado while the Giants host the Padres. Elsewhere in the league, a pair of three-time Cy Young winners are in action as the Dodgers' Clayton Kershaw faces the rival Crosstown Angels while the Mets' ace Justin Verlander opposes his former Astros teammates in Houston. And finally, the Boston Red Sox, who are in last place in the very competitive AL East despite a 38-35 record, play at Cleveland, who leads the very weak AL Central despite a worse record of 36 wins against 37 losses. And that's it for your sports news today. Tiff, back to you. Coming up, homelessness in America is rising consistently for many years in a row. Why this is happening and what you can do if you or a loved one is in a tough place. 
And a rare jumping rodent has been spotted in Northern California. A biologist shares with NTD what makes this creature so special and rare after the break. Welcome back. Homelessness has been rising consistently year over year, even hitting a record high last year. Data from 67 of some of the worst cities shows a 13% increase from 2020. NDD's Sean Marshall takes a closer look at the issue. Homelessness in America is consistently rising year over year. In 2022, it hit a record high of nearly 600,000 people. The Wall Street Journal found that out of 67 cities with high homeless populations, there was a 13% increase since 2020. We're seeing a lot more individuals, um, unfortunately, coming to the streets to live and they don't have family to help them. So a lot of times they are literally left to fend for themselves. Marla Bautista is the CEO of the Bautista Project Incorporated, a nonprofit that helps unhoused community members in Florida. She says the rising cost of living is pushing many onto the streets. In Florida, this is especially so for the elderly. The pandemic lockdowns and the end of the pandemic aid made the situation worse. The mom who works at Walmart. Well, during COVID, when the school shut down and the daycare center shut down, but Walmart didn't shut down. The single mother had to choose between going to work at her minimum wage job or staying home and losing that source of income, which would then, of course, lead to homelessness. Are you or a loved one or a friend currently experiencing homelessness or in danger of becoming homeless? Here are some tips. Feeding America is a nonprofit that has 60,000 food pantries throughout the United States. They provide free food to those in need. It's also a good idea to go to a local emergency shelter for both temporary housing and help getting back onto your feet. Many churches also offer these services. Sean Marshall, NTD News. A rare sighting of Santa Cruz kangaroo rats is reported in Santa Clara County, California. A biologist tells NTD just how rare this little hopping creature is and why they are considered a keystone species. The Santa Cruz kangaroo rat is a special type that was only discovered in the Santa Cruz mountains by an independent researcher as recent as in 2019. The latest sighting has the biological community very excited. It is incredibly rare. They're very imperiled. And it was so fabulous to hear that they found a whole new population of them. It's just really a great thing. I've been very concerned about them because the only place they were known from was one single population in a place called Henry Coe State Park. Kangaroo rat is a misnomer because biologically is neither a kangaroo nor a rat, rather more closely related to gophers and chipmunks. You can tell by their large hind legs and hopping motions. If you're thinking about finding one and adopting it as a pet, think again. Kangaroo rats are listed by the California Department of Fish and Wildlife as a critically imperiled subspecies. They're not really very good in um, a uh, captive population situation. Um, they need these really uh, unique sandy soils where they dig burrows, and um, basically they're so rare. Another notable feature of kangaroo rats is their fur-lined cheek pouches, which are used for storing food. 
and their ability to store seeds make them ideal species for the health of the ecosystem. Actually store seeds by digging a little hole and putting the seeds in it and then covering up. We call that caching. Um, then they return later, and if they can find them, they can eat the seeds. But a lot of times they can't find them, and those caches actually sprout new plants and regenerate the vegetation. There are only 23 species of kangaroo rats left in California. Next time, if you're lucky enough to spot one in the wild, don't forget to take pictures. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. That's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.